You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. Over the next two weeks, we'll be playing stories produced by Melbourne Uni audio journalism students as part of our special collaboration with the Science Gallery. Each student will be sharing their take on the theme, Breaking the Binary. In our first story this week, Sasha Gattemeyer talks to end-of-life doulas about what it means to bridge the gap between life and death. This story begins with an ending. In fact, all stories do. As soon as we're born, we begin to die. We start shedding and regenerating cells from birth. According to researchers at Simon Fraser University in Canada, cognitive speed starts dropping from age 24. By 55 years old, we lose control of our DNA. Life is a constant process of death. One group of people who understand this concept well are death doulas, practitioners who guide dying people and their relatives through the last stages of their life. Like birth doulas, end-of-life doulas prepare and nurture you for this second great life transition. You know, the family hires us, and that might be the dying person. It might be, it might be a family member that hires us that wants us to support the people around the dying person. Renee Adair is the founder of the Australian Doula College. She's a birth doula as well as a death doula. Her Instagram handle is at womb to tomb. And then our job is to be with them, but but move within the system. So, you know, to sometimes advocate for the family for their needs and wishes and desires, you know, help them do their planning, if you like, and take that information to the healthcare providers. Sometimes I feel like two are a bit of a translator you know, a lot of medical um, jargon needs breaking down. Another person in this space is Kimber Griffith, the owner of funeral service The Last Hurrah. She provides personal and authentic end-of-life ceremonies in Melbourne. She first entered the industry as a death doula in 2012. The classic idea of a death doula is that, you know, you're, they're there holding vigil at someone's bedside. But to be honest, at that point, the person who's dying very rarely needs you. Um, that's a big difference between a birth doula and a death doula. So with a birth doula, the birthing woman needs you more and more and more. And on the day of the birth, they need you there, you know. Whereas with a death doula, ideally, when they go into their active dying, you're more focused on the people that are supporting the dying person, like making sure how long have you been here? Oh, two days without a shower. Do you want to go home and I can stay? Kimba, managing the arrival of death for those who are still living is a big part of her job. You know, I had a, um, someone I was working with who died last night um, and I had the hospital was calling me to go in and I, I was doing that. And the thing was that person hadn't connected me with their family because I think they were young and they just didn't, you know, they didn't know, uh, they didn't want to talk about dying really. So, and they, they wanted me to come in, but then when I'd come in, they were kind of conflicted. And so I went in uh, a couple of days ago and I, I was like, okay, I can see that they're starting to be actively dying now. This is a change. So like I wrote on the whiteboard, like to their family, Hey, it's the death doula, drop me a line, you know, which was really good. Then they rang me and what I did was I supported them and told them what to expect and explained what they might go through the stages how to manage their tiredness, when to call me, you know, and all that kind of stuff. While listening to Kimber and Renee talk, all I can think about is 
Have we forgotten how to die? We're all going to die. It's a 100% guarantee there. 10 out of 10, nobody gets out alive, right? So, you know, having a body of people or someone you can turn to that has some information and knowledge, uh, has some uh, understanding about death and dying is, is critical. Renee does not see life and death as separate, discrete opposites. For her, it all exists on one continuum. We have a profession that is, I think, trying to restore the incredible importance of the transition that the first and the last breath is and that it is not disconnected. One is not from the other. They are moments to be treasured and respected and most of all loved and not feared. We started this story with an ending. Now we finish it with a beginning. I'm inside St Paul's Cathedral on one of the busiest corners in Melbourne CBD. I've been thinking about life and death a lot recently and this seemed like a good place to do it. That's especially true right now as suspended from the towering ceiling is a new addition. A giant glowing orb mimicking the earth hangs above the choir, rotating slowly in the air. It's an installation artwork made by British artist Luke Jerram. Her name is Gaia and she's constructed from NASA imagery of the planet's surface. Just as end-of-life duelers tread the line between life and death, this mesmerising celestial presence pokes even more boundaries towards blur. It's a contemporary intervention in a space of tradition. It's a cosmology inside a theology. A physical world inside the spiritual. An earthly body reminding us of heavens. That story was produced by Sasha Gadamayo. Ollie Krusek was the supervising producer. Up next, Anawan man Nick Doyle on incorporating Indigenous knowledge systems into modern design. Yelamandi is the Darug word for storyteller. In Aboriginal culture, the stories that elders pass down form the foundation of Indigenous knowledge systems. One of the greatest sources of this knowledge comes from country, a sacred, spiritual and deeply personal concept for Aboriginal people. When I think of what country means to me, I think of it as a really holistic concept that encompasses every part of our lifeblood, our being, our spirituality, our connection to each other and to the landscape. Someone once said country is life and I think that's really important um, to remember because we can't actually see country as separate from ourselves. It's part of a holistic worldview that connects everything, everyone, and every spirit. That was Yatu with his hunt, an Anaman person and specialist Aboriginal consultant from Sydney. I'm Nick Doyle, and I'm also an Anaman person. Over the past year, Yatu and I have been working with designers and developers on breaking the exclusion of Indigenous knowledge and country from modern placemaking. Being on country is a sensory experience. It's not just a type of metal or a shape of a building. It's actually how you feel, how your spirit is ignited, what you hear, what you smell. And I think we've almost lost that holistic approach to being in space and being in a place. Designers and property developers can actually influence that experience in a really profound way. I'm down at Sydney Harbour with Wiradjuri person, Janice Constable, and we've been reflecting on the inherently sustainable land and water practices in Aboriginal culture. 
We understand that if we care for country, it will care for us, and that this cultural practice is paramount for Australia's future sustainability. A future landscape is one where we've addressed climate change and that the scarring on the earth that's happening now because of climate change is ameliorated or at least regarded as something we can address. And I think connecting country is a key part of that. When working with designers and developers on using Indigenous knowledge, Yatu and I have been implementing a process known as Connecting Country, which asks placemakers to place a health of country at the centre of construction projects. I think the built environment takes a lot from country in the same way that lots of industries do. So in a way, I almost feel like it's important that there's recognition of that and that there is respect and consideration given to what we take from country and how to do that in a more mindful way. But I also think that city shaping and the built environment is also part of our contemporary storytelling and part of our contemporary storytelling lives in country. But how can country and Indigenous ways of doing things inform modern design? I was actually very recently talking to designer Denny Francisco and she says when she creates work she doesn't actually go in with a predetermined notion, she actually just creates space for country to tell her and evolve ideas through the experience of being there. And I think that's a really beautiful Aboriginal worldview and process and way of doing something. And I think it's really important that our built environment works in harmony with country, respects country and acknowledges what it has taken. In using Indigenous knowledge and the reverence we have for country and community, we aim to not only forge deeper connections with the landscape around us, but to also create spaces that facilitate greater connection between people. Something might be designed in a way that actually strengthens someone's connection to that place, even if they've never been there before. It might be in the shape of a walkway because of the vista that they might see when they do that. It might be in the shape of a room that provides a more democratised space rather than a traditional Western hierarchical space. So there's lots of different nuances and ways of imagining what the outcomes of connecting with country will be. Connecting with country aims to alter people's feelings of place by designing spaces that highlight why country is so sacred for Aboriginal people, which Janice says opens the door for deeper conversations. It heralds some kind of maturity that Australia has come to. And I think that the more people that embrace it, the less fearful people are about Aboriginal issues. And some of my non-Aboriginal friends, when I talk to them about that, they've come back to me and gone, oh, yeah, yeah, I went to bloody blah and I felt different. It's like, yeah, well, you can feel it too. Like, everyone can feel it. By breaking the binary of where people think ancient Indigenous knowledge belongs and bringing its relevance into modern Australia, we send a message that all lived experiences have a role in shaping our society. Through connecting with country, we are acknowledging Aboriginal culture as a continuous living thread rather than something to be memorialised. And surely there can be no greater acknowledgement of country than having it reflected in the world built around us. That story was produced by Nick Doyle. Mel Chun was the supervising producer. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Danny Stewart. All the Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. 
This week, we're sharing a collection of stories produced by Melbourne Uni audio journalism students as part of our special collaboration with the Science Gallery. The theme for this year's collab is Breaking the Binary. When Serena converted to Islam, she felt ostracized by her home country of Malta. In our next story, she shares her experience breaking the link of Maltese and Catholic identity and creating a unique culture of her own. I was raised a second-generation Australian to a family of hyper-Catholics hailing from a little-known island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. My maternal grandparents immigrated to Melbourne in the 1950s from the island of Gozo, belonging to the Archipelago of Malta, a country so Catholic that one can find more than one church per square kilometre and a picture of the Pope in every home. And such was ours, a modest weatherboard house built from the ground up by my grandfather himself, its walls adorned with images of the Virgin Mary and a statue of a saint placed in every room. Our home was full of the sounds of the rustic Gosaidan dialect of Maltese, a Semitic language rooted in the now obsolete secular Arabic. One might have called us indigenous Maltese, but nobody really knows who the original Maltese were. From Malta's history has seen the islands be conquered by almost everyone, from the Byzantines to the Arabs, to the Normans and then to the Spanish, the Italian, the French and finally the British. Malta only gained her independence in 1964, and she has since faced one hell of an identity crisis. The original Maltese are said to be Phoenicians, but the people that would have the most lasting influence on the island's inhabitants were, in fact, the Arabs. Despite this, Malta largely denies any Arab identity, and an incessant othering of the Arab and the Muslim has been deeply ingrained in the Maltese psyche. Malta's 200 years of Islamic rule saw the Maltese largely convert from Orthodox Christianity to Islam. It also gave the nation its language, the island's place names, the people's surnames, and influenced agriculture, architecture, the foods produced, the ways that they were cooked, and the style of folk songs sang by the farmers who cultivated them. The invasion of the Normans saw the commencement of a campaign of Latinization and the introduction of Roman Catholicism to the islands. A succession of European invaders over many hundreds of years continued this campaign until 95% of the Maltese were converted from Islam to Catholicism and firmly believed themselves to be European, while the Muslim was damned as but infidel and other, which can still be seen today. At 18, when I left the Catholic Church and converted to Shia Islam, I too was damned as other and denied by the only culture that I had ever known. I will never forget the night that I took my Shahada, the Islamic declaration of faith, and the sense of wholeness that I felt upon its completion. Little did I know though that my entire being was about to be torn in two. One comprised of my ancestry, my family, my culture and my identity, and the other of my beliefs, the man that I loved and a place that I would truly find God. By becoming a Muslim, I assumed that I could remain Maltese, 
The Maltese, however, were very quick to make it abundantly clear to me that I could no longer call myself Maltese and a Muslim at the same time. I often reflect on my conversion as like being thrown out of home. A home that I naively thought that I could always return to, no matter how far out into the world that I strayed. A home safe and constant, a place that I could sleep soundly in, comforted by the faint echoes of my late grandmother's nightly utterances of the rosary. Instead, I was thrust out into the world and found myself in the most volatile, terrifying and incredible place on earth. There is one place once described as the world's most dangerous country, Pakistan. And it was there that I was welcomed with open arms, taken in and offered a new home. As a teenage bride, I landed in the subcontinent, perpetually overwhelmed, lost in a sea of comings and goings, forever attempting to navigate the ever-dark and claustrophobic, anarchical wasteland that was Karachi, Pakistan. I often wonder what my experience of the division of ethnicity and religion might mean for my own children, who too bleed Maltese blood but may never be recognised as Maltese. For now, they remain three personifications of the binary that I broke, and may one day create a new, unique culture of their own. That story was produced by Serena Raza. Mel Chun was the supervising producer. There are more women and gender-diverse folks getting involved in AFL than ever before. But is the historically male-dominated world of footy actually an inclusive space? In our next story, Angus discovers that there's still some work to do. The modern world of Australian rules football is, on the surface, more progressive than ever before. The AFLW attracts large crowds and plenty of mainstream media coverage. However, dig a little deeper and it's clear that there is a long way to go to break the long-held male hegemony on the sport. A recent report found that issues of sexism and discrimination were at their worst in the world of umpiring, but by no means limited to that space. Marnie Vinnell, a sports reporter who covers the AFL and AFLW, tells me more. So I, I'm not an umpire, so my experience talking to that exact report is limited, but I can talk a lot to the parallels within working in sports media and then a lot of the findings within that sport because, you know, it is just working in a male-dominated industry and environment, and I think that you can perpetuate a lot of culture that has been embedded for a very long time and built for a very long time. And you know, there was, it was a lot of sexism, but there was also racism in that report. And although it wasn't explicit, I can imagine that homophobia um, and transphobia is something else that occurs a lot because, uh, you, you know, there was an article the other day about how because of the just such a heteronormative, patriarchal kind of environment that AFL is and Australian sport is um, like there's no openly gay AFL players at the moment, but there's like 20 to 30% in the AFLW. So obviously it's an environmental issue. 
The report and the lived experiences of those who cover the sport and work within it depict a grim picture where sexism and misogyny are still rampant and reflect that at a general level, a safe space does not necessarily exist for women or anyone else not traditionally associated with the male world of football. I have been in rooms where I've been the only woman and I've overheard men talking about their colleagues' bodies and their female colleagues' bodies. So that is definitely um, a reality of the situation. So everything that I read in that report on the umpires, like it all appalled me, but like nothing surprised me because the parallels were just very obvious. That's the sound of some umpire abuse. And obviously in reality, the chants are often a lot worse than bullshit. As we've heard, football frequently still isn't a welcoming environment for all. I spoke to Julie Graney, head of girls development at Fitzroy Football Club, about the importance of encouraging the next generation to umpire, coach and play. I see a few more female umpires than I used to, uh, even in the junior levels. Um, I don't see many female coaches. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And the best way to um, build capacity is through role modelling and demonstration, particularly particularly when you're appealing to children and young people because their way of learning is very active and it's very much about what you see and you copy what others do and you get inspired by what you see and you go, hey, I want to do that too. But if they're not seeing it, they're not going to inquire into it. It's very powerful for women and girls to experience that sort of more ensemble team sport where there's really distinct roles and it's not all about the girl that gets to play Mary in the end of year, you know, Christmas play. (laughs) And they come in all shapes and sizes. You don't have to be a skinny mini to play football. In fact, it's good to have really big, strong girls. When it comes to setting an inclusive standard at a professional level, the AFLW has a lot that the men's equivalent could learn from. When you go to an AFLW game, the visibility of people from different cultures, different age groups uh, and and people of different gender fluid um, persuasions, much more gay friendly, um, LGBTQI+, much more. Um, And you don't have that visibility at the men's games and it wouldn't, I, I don't think they would feel safe there. Um, because it very much has, even though there's women present, AFL men's games, there's more alcohol and there's just more men shouting and it's really, you know, a bit more masculine. Football has a powerful ability to confront and challenge existing norms. However, there is still a lot of work to be done to truly break the binaries that have existed in the game for over a century and a half. That story was produced by Angus McIntyre, with supervising production from me. I'm Danny Stewart, and you're listening to All the Best. This week, stories on the theme of breaking the binary. In our final story... Gwen starts a new relationship. Jeans check, snack check, earphones check, and most importantly, the internet checks. I'm lying on the couch, staring at the progress bar on my phone. I cannot wait to see my boyfriend, Osman. 
Ausman and I have planned a special trip for today. Today is May twentieth, a special day for Chinese couples. The numbers five two zero sound like "I love you" in Chinese. Sorry, it's Ausman. 是我。呃，我这边出了一点小状况，要晚点才能过来接你。Osman says he has a situation to deal with, but he promised to pick me up later. Osman is a professional racing driver. He is about 185 centimeters, has black hair and green eyes. I first met him at a fashion design competition for the Virgin Prize. He helped me to find my stolen jewelry. I never imagined that I could meet someone as cool as him in my real life. One day he got close to me and fancied my seatbelt. My heart was beating fast and my cheeks were burning. I want this man to be my boyfriend, and I know he will never say no to me, because Osman is not human. He is one of the characters in a mobile phone game called Light at Night. Light at Night was released last year. Now it has over 10 million users. In Light at Night, I can enjoy multi-line stories with five characters. To cultivate intimacy with them, I can text them, call them, and comment on their posts. When the relationship gets close enough, the more exciting part will be unlocked. The exclusive dating is coming. My first date with Osman was pretty dramatic. It took me to the coastal road. Not for the beautiful sunset, but for a racing competition. I was in the car, trying my best not to scream. He noticed that I was nervous. He let me close my eyes and play the jazz song for me. When I opened my eyes again, he asked me to think about how to celebrate our victory later. After that day, he told me that. Destination of a racing car was the end of the track, but his destination was always by my side. 赛车的终点是赛道的尽头，而我的终点是你的身边。Actually, I don't know if I can see Osman today. Now I have been trapped in a small mission for a while. To start a big trip, I will have to pass it. However. I have used up all my credits to enter the mission ten times, but failed. I'm facing two choices: waiting for the system to restore tomorrow, or purchasing more opportunities right now. Instead of selling the games to the player, Light and Light sells credits for entering the mission. It means that recharging is not a guaranteed pass. And now each entrance is going to cost me almost one dollar. One dollar is not expensive, but how many times I will need to spend one dollar is unknown. It is the first time I feel that there is a profit behind Osman and me. I know from the beginning that Osman is not real. He is a robot. Created for money. Everything he did for me was prescribed to make me happy.
but his existence in my life is real. My memories with him are real. My beating heart is real. Happy May twenties to everyone. To the real me, I'm going on that virtual trip with Osborne today. Wish me luck. That story was produced by Gwen Liao. Daniel Simo was the supervising producer. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories, and pay our respects to elders past. And present, all the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with Sin and Three Triple R on Murundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonarong lands, and Eight Triple C on Arunda and Moramungu lands. The all the best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Emma Pham and Anusha Rana are our social media producers, and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shiningberg composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening. <laughs>